I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Good afternoon or night or morning, whenever you are listening to this. The date right now is Tuesday, March 20th, as a matter of fact. Uh, And we have had a phenomenal week in the world of sports, mostly because... Um, I think this is one of the best college basketball weekends that perhaps we have ever seen. Uh, we knew that it was going to be a crazy tournament coming in. No team really looked dominant. But the the weekend of play, the amount of close games, virtually I think every game you turned, tuned into was close, except for maybe a few. And they had wire, wire finishes, phenomenal stories. Uh, of course, we're going to get to UMBC uh later in the show uh but just a great weekend in sports uh the first thing we're going to talk about though is a long developing story uh that started actually like a little before uh i was going to do some stuff last week but we didn't have the time uh and this is the nfl free agency period uh and so we're going to talk about some moves that teams have made uh i think let's just get started one of the first teams that i wanted to talk about uh, it was going to be the Cleveland Browns, who, of course, have been a symbol of futility for years and years and years. And yet, uh, they made some moves this offseason. Uh, they traded for wide receiver Jarvis Landry from Miami. They traded for quarterback Tyrod Taylor from Buffalo. They traded for cornerback Demarius Randall from Green Bay. Uh, they traded for running back Carlos Hyde uh, from the 49ers. And I, a couple of other moves that uh, not off the top of my head right now. But... It's good to see that the Browns are doing things, despite, you know, of course, their 0-16 record that they had last year uh, and the 1-15 record that they had the year before. They were not doing anything, and they needed a spark plug. Uh, You can't just get that from within, especially with veteran Joe Thomas retiring, who had a phenomenal year. Uh, And in the last pack week, we might spend more time on that. But you need something. And a bunch of young talent is coming. Uh, just Jarvis Landry is 25 years old. Uh, Demetrius Demarius Randall uh, is 25 years old. Carlos Hyde is hell. He's 27 years old. Tyrod Taylor is 28 years old. Not only that, they have the first and fourth overall picks in the upcoming NFL draft, uh, which has some big names on the top, including uh, at quarterback with uh, you know uh, Josh Rosen, Sam Darnold, Josh Allen, uh, Lamar Jackson. Plus, you've got running back talent at the top with, of course, Saquon Barkley, plus talented guys like Shaquem Griffin on um, those sort. So there's tons of young talent, and if the Browns don't trade away two of their first four picks, which I, I think they will tra- end up trading one of them, uh, just because that's the way they are, but not both. But they're going to get some great young guy in addition to this young talent that they've acquired in the trade. And so this team is going to have a really fresh start to go off of, hopefully try to reset the culture a little bit uh, from what they've had in years past. Now, of course, despite all of this, I'm still skeptical of the Browns because, uh, you know, I mean, none of these trade or these these people that they got, of course, they're great players, but none of them have really had a chance to play in that standout situation yet. Like Jarvis Landry has had to have a revolving door of quarterbacks in Miami. No, consistent guy like he had Tannehill and Matt Moore uh, and Jay Cutler last year, so he hasn't really had a chance to develop a rapport with anyone, which. It, with the Browns, you know, it, it's it's going to be a lot of the same, probably. Uh, Tyrod Taylor, I know people are saying, like, he's going to be kind of like what I've heard is like a bridge quarterback, kind of on the way to a 
a uh, a more talented younger rookie like a Darnold or a Rosen. And I think that could be okay, but um, Tyrell Taylor in the moment, if Browns fans are expecting him to win right away, I mean, he had in Buffalo LaShawn McCoy, who is, of course, one of the best running backs in the league, and yet all he could manage in the playoffs was a 10-3 loss to the Jacksonville Jaguars. So, I mean, he's not going to give you anything right away, and so they should be a little patient. And, of course... The Browns, the things that worries me most about this Cleveland team is that they're just the Browns. I know they've got new management. They're turning, trying to turn a new leaf with all these moves. But it's, it's going to be tough. I, I don't know if they're going to be able to surround these guys with the rest of the proper pieces to win. But nonetheless, it's a good start to trying to uh, get to the playoffs and maybe make some moves. Because the division is not particularly strong. The Steelers of course, are at the top of the division year after year. But the Ravens and the Bengals are not teams that jump out at you as teams that uh, can can compete with the Steelers and compete for the division. So the Browns will have a chance to hopefully feast on those worst teams and get maybe some more wins this year. Next in the NFL is the fall of the Legion of Boom in Seattle with the two trade or the two deals of Michael Bennett being traded to the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, and Richard Sherman being released and going to the 49ers. Uh, These were two of the cornerstones of probably one of the most dominant defenses in recent NFL history. Uh, Some of these, just, this is ridiculous. The Seahawks gave up the fewest number, uh, the fewest total points in the league in 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, and give the third fewest points in 2016. Just that consistency to... uh, you can look at all the advanced metrics, but at the end of the day, it's how many points do you give up. And the Seahawks defense was one of the, was the best in the league uh, at holding teams that for four consecutive years, which is remarkable. And of course, they led Seattle to two Super Bowl appearances and one championship. It was nothing to scoff at. Now, for this defense, uh, they still have, at the moment at least, uh, Earl Thomas, Cam Chancellor, uh, and ta- talented guy in uh, Shaquille Griffin. Uh, and I think Deshaun Shed left. Um, but Sherman and Bennett are humongous losses on the field. Uh, uh, for Michael Bennett, he was an intimidating presence on the D-line. He always got pressure on the quarterback. Uh, and then for Richard Sherman, uh, locking, locking down an entire side of the field and a number one receiver. So you, you had to be deep to beat the Seahawks when Sherman was at his best and healthy because Sherman was going to take away your number one. Uh, and you all, he, and no one would dare throw to him, so it makes it easier on the rest of the defense, and that's a ripple effect that you might not get with some other corners, no matter how good they are. Uh, they also, these, these guys were leaders off the field. Uh, Richard Sherman was kind of the de facto head of the defense, uh, and he exemplified the Legion of Boom attitude, where he's tough, he's not going to back down, and he's going to talk and talk and talk and walk the walk. Um... Yeah, and then Michael Bennett was also vocal during the game, but he was also vocal outside of the game. Both of them were vocal outside of the game on Twitter, in press conferences, and they brought a lot of personality to the team that you might not get from guys like Chancellor or Thomas. Uh, and the defense is it's never going to be as dominant as it once was, even if Bennett and Sherman had stayed, um, but it's going to be tough for them to recover from this and really develop what they had, because last year they were not that good of a team. They... Uh, barely missed the playoffs, and it's it's might be the end of an era in Seattle is what we're seeing. Russell Wilson, of course, is still there, um, and he's still going to work his magic, but they're not going to be able to be perennial Super Bowl contenders like they were in the past. 
A uh, couple of little other things I'm going to touch on. Uh, Kirk Cousins being traded to Minnesota from Washington. Uh, I think this was. Sh- uh, I think everyone knew that Kirk Cousins was going to leave Washington just because the ownership group uh, is so inept and they were not building a contender around Cousins. The defense was horrific, uh, and they weren't going to go anywhere. So they got rid of him. I think it's surprising that he went to Minnesota just because Minnesota and and what Minnesota ended up doing is getting rid of three quarterbacks in the span of like a day with Sam Bradford, Teddy Bridgewater, and Case Keenum all being traded away. Um, And you don't often see a team just dump and reset after an NFC Championship appearance. Like, they were in the semifinals of the NFL playoffs, so to speak, and they're all the way to dumping all of their quarterbacks and starting anew. This will be, I think, a bridge year for the Vikings. I don't think they can return to the NFC Championship game with this totally revamped roster. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it'll, be, it'll be a fun experiment to see how Kirk Cousins play in when he finally has a good defense uh, and has some more explosive weapons on the outside. Like, all he had in Washington was Garcon for a little bit, Jack, Deshaun Jackson for a little bit, and Vernon Davis. Um, but now he's going to have Kyle Rudolph, who's uh, arguably better than Davis, for, and he's younger for sure. Uh, Stephon Diggs, who is fast and powerful uh, and all of that. Uh, and he's going to be a really good... It's a, it's a pretty good fit, and I'm excited to see what this Minnesota team will do. Uh, the last one is the New York Jets trading the number six pick of this year, the two second-round picks from this year, and a 2019 second-round pick uh, for the number three overall pick from the Colts. And they are giving a ton to move up three spots. Uh, I I mean, they're clearly looking, they're gunning for someone here. Uh, it's probably going to be a quarterback because they have to expect Saquon Barkley to go off the board in the first two picks. So it looks like they're trying to secure a quarterback from the fu- for the future. And yet they picked up Teddy Bridgewater from Minnesota. So I'm, I'm, I don't know exactly what their mindset is. The Jets, like the Browns, are not exactly the best organization. Um, but if they're looking for a quarterback and maybe they're treating Teddy Bridgewater like the Browns seemingly uh, are treating Tyrod Taylor, uh, it's it's curious to see what'll happen. I don't I don't know if they would have or they should have given up this much, but they really must see something in one of those quarterbacks that the rest of us don't. Because if you're giving this up, uh, number six overall pick, you definitely could have gotten a great uh, lineman or you could have gotten a great skill position player too at that pick with the depth of this draft. Uh, two second-round picks, I mean, those are guys that can fill needs and are going to be really talented uh, at, like, say, the quarterback position or something. And then 2019 second-round pick, that's like, that could be, that those three picks there could form the base of a defense or an offense, and they're trading that away just to get a quarterback, which if you're getting a great quarterback, is worth it, but you've got to be really sure about what you've got. So those are the NFL uh, trade deadline story, or trade free agency stories. But now we're going to get to the big story of this week, which, of course, is going to be much Madness. So let's uh, recap what happened with some teams from this weekend. Uh, UMBC. So the number 16 seed knocked off the one seed Virginia 74-54 to in the first round. Uh, that's I'm sure you've heard this statistic many times, but it's the first 16 seed to beat a one seed in 136 tries. It's just remarkable what they were able to do. I've seen uh, articles on places like 538, which is a highly recommended website, that say this this 
should have happened earlier, but nonetheless, it's gone to the point where it's like, wow, is this ever going to happen? And it did. Um, how did they win this game by such in such dominating fashion? It really was because they forced Virginia to play from behind, and that's something Virginia hasn't really had to do this year. Like, their largest deficit they faced before this game was 13, and they ended up losing by 20, and they were down by more than 13 for, like, the last 10 minutes of the game. Uh, and when you play the way Virginia does, when you're a slow, like, Tony Bennett famous-style offense, where your goal is to just grind teams down uh, and win low-scoring games, it's hard to play, play when you're behind. Uh, and all UMBC did was tear this defense apart. Uh, it was a frantic defense, and UMBC just exploited the back cuts uh, and just ran right into the basket and hit their threes, which is something Virginia usually doesn't allow. And they cruised to a win. Uh, even though UMBC wasn't able to go to the Sweet 16, this is something that these kids are going to remember for the rest of their lives uh, and something that we're going to probably remember for the rest of our lives. And unfortunately for Virginia, the kids on their team will forever be tied to this loss. It's interesting, actually. Virginia uh, lost in one of probably the worst upset in college basketball history up to this point against Chaminade, and I think it was 1982 or something like that, who was an NAIA team back then. And now they lose to a 16 seed as a one. So they have two of the worst losses in NCAA history, and it sucks for them, but we got a phenomenal story out of it in UMBC. Uh, the next one is going to be Loyal Chicago, who made the Sweet 16 after two last-second wins, which was a game-winning three by Dante Ingram versus Miami, and Clayton Custer hitting a game-winning shot with three seconds left uh, against Tennessee. And they're a great story, too, because of their uh, maternal, like, fairy, or not very godmother, whatever, uh, Sister Jean, who's their famous religious woman person. But either way, phenomenal story. Uh, and Loyola Chicago, I think, has a legit chance to get to the Elite Eight. Uh, Nevada, pulling off two of the biggest comebacks of the tournament so far. 14 points against Texas, 22 points against Cincinnati. They just had 11 minutes left, too, to score 22 points or make up a 22-point deficit. And like Loyola Chicago, uh, they have a legit shot to get to the, the Elite Eight. A team that has shown to come, been able to come back is a dangerous team, especially in a one-game situation like this, because you never feel safe as the team that, that's playing them. Uh, you know that they can explode at any time and that you are never secure to victory. You can never be sharpied in, as Seth Davis says. Uh, so this they will be a fun team to watch going against Loyola in the next round. Uh, let's see, Florida State beat Xavier uh, in a stunning comeback after trailing by 10 with six minutes to go. And that made Xavier the second one seed to lose. Of course, Virginia was the first. And this is only the fourth tournament uh, in NCAA history, in which two number one seeds were knocked out before the Sweet 16. Remarkable. Uh, just puts puts a stamp on the chaos that was this season in college basketball. Uh, Florida State is a talented team. Uh, another one, Michigan. This was a fun team to watch. Uh, they're the three seed in the West region. And they needed a last-second three by Jordan Poole to get past Houston in the second round. And in my opinion... That game was one of the best uh, in the tournament so far. Uh, just It was back and forth. No team really got out to more than like a seven-point lead virtually the entire game. Even when Houston got out to a five-point lead with about, I think, six minutes to go and seemed to be taking control, Michigan hits a three. There's a foul under the basket. They make two free throws. It's tied in one possession from a five-point game. Uh, and that just epitomizes what's happened so far. 
uh, and also 538 agrees with me. They are excitement index for this game, for that game, which is pretty much on a scale from z- 0 to 10, was a 9.9. Um, and if you look at the win probability for that game, it's just like, ooh, up and down, up and down. No one gets more than like 55% the entire game. Um, next from the same region is going to be Texas A&M, who had a dominating performance uh, of UNC in the second round. And it's the worst loss by Roy Williams, North Carolina's coach and previous coaches, is in tournament history. He's never lost by uh, 21, 20, 21 points. Uh, and Texas A&M, now it looks like they can beat anyone with that type of performance. They're going to have a tough Michigan team coming up next in their region. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were able to pull off that upset uh, and get to the Elite Eight next weekend. Uh, the I think it's the Eastern Division went pretty chalk, one, two, three, five uh, seeds, which is pretty surprising. So we're going to skip straight down to the Midwest, where Syracuse uh, is going to be going to the Sweet 16 as a double-digit seed. I think uh, it was either last year or two years ago they got to the Final Four as a 10 seed, uh, and now they're back, and that shows the how much how much this coaching group matters. Like Jim Beheim. He's one of the best coaches in basketball, and he's able to lead any team, even one that had to get through the first four, uh, to the Sweet 16. And on their way, they had to be the humongous power in Michigan State, who is one of the best players in the country, Miles Bridges, who was playing pretty well uh, before this game. And uh, that was a really tough matchup for them. So Syracuse, watch out for them. Uh, their matchup against Duke in Sweet 16 is going to be a lot of fun, I think. Uh, just I think I've said this already, but just... With the matchups you've got and Grayson Allen and Marvin Bagley, it will be a lot of fun. Uh, so now let's preview the next weekend in college basketball. Uh, first up, we're going to do the South region, which is the one that everyone lost in. Uh, the region is totally in shambles. The highest seed in the South region, this is interesting to see, is actually a five, which is Kentucky. Uh, and actually, I said Kentucky would be a Final Four sleeper pick, so watch out for Kentucky. Um, and... The one seed Virginia lost, the two seed Cincinnati lost, three seed Tennessee lost, and the four seed Arizona all lost before the Sweet 16. And that really clears up the region for Kentucky. I mean, the teams that are left, Kansas State, Loyola, Chicago, and uh, the 7th seed Nevada. No one has the raw talent to match what Kentucky has. Uh, and all these teams that are left, like they're all the good, really good defensive teams that seem like they would be primed to stop a Kentucky-like team are gone. Uh, Cincinnati... Virginia, even Tennessee, all of these teams have really good defenses, plus DeAndre Ayton, who was that one big game-breaker that looked like he could have a monster game against Kentucky. He's no longer in the picture. Uh, so it, no, no, nothing, no one is safe in the South Bracket anymore, but out of all the oppor- all things that could have happened, Kentucky should be really, really happy. Uh, and the only thing, I guess, that would have made this region any more Cinderella-y or chaos-y is UMBC. Uh, beating Kansas State and getting the lead eight as a six or Sweet Sixteen as a sixteen seed. That's a funny coincidence, um, but still, it's a phenomenal s- stories that we've got from here. Uh, next up is the West region. Uh, after some Sunday madness, uh, the one and two seeds are gone. UNC and who was the one seed? Xavier. Um, I think Xavier. The, the loss from Xavier. They didn't really prove themselves over the course of the year. I mean, of course, they had a great record and all. Uh, but they lost to Providence in the Big East tournament. Um, they don't really have any big stars. So I don't think anyone saw them losing this early. I think they would have lost to Gonzaga had they advanced uh, based on from Florida State. Um, but I think the most shocking loss from this region is North Carolina. Because uh, they 
were able to advance to the ACC tournament. They knocked off a really tough Duke team. That's the two seed on the other side of the bracket. And I thought they were going to get at least to the Sweet 16 and possibly to the Final Four. I mean, they could have easily beaten this Michigan team uh, had they had a good day, and they could beat either Xavier or Gonzaga. It wouldn't have been really much of a problem for them, I think. And just how much they lost by, too, how much they were dominated throughout this game. They were down at half by seven, and they never were able to really push this Texas A&M team. Uh, And it's tough for those kids, and it's tough for Roy Williams, um, but that's just the nature of the tournament. And I think Gonzaga is kind of like the only powerhouse left in the region. Uh, They were one of the winningest teams in the country this year, and they were able to put up a good offensive showing against OSU, scoring 90 points. Uh, and I think if they're on fire, they can beat anyone. Uh, Michigan also, I think, is a strong team, not as strong as Gonzaga. But I think they could also make a run at the Final Four, even though they barely survived the second round. Um, just because they've shown the heart and they were able to survive in advance one of the tougher parts of the bracket. Uh, but they shouldn't overlook Texas A&M, uh, and I don't think they will. But Michigan's offense has struggled in the tournament so far. And they have a tough matchup with AM, who has held UNC to 33% shooting. So if Michigan's offense can't click into gear, guys like Mo Wagner and Duncan Robinson can't show up uh, against Texas AM. It's going to be a really tough game to win. Next, let's move up to the top right corner of the bracket, the East. Uh, after some early chaos, like I said, this region went pretty chalk, 1, 2, 3, 5. Um, and it wasn't as easy as it seemed, though. Both Purdue and Texas Tech had to survive gut checks in the second round, like really tough games. Uh, Purdue against Butler, who they beat by three, and Texas Tech against uh, Florida, who they were able to escape. Um, And I don't think either of these teams can beat the team that comes out of the top part of this bracket, Villanova or West Virginia, um, because West Virginia had a dominant showing against Marshall, who was going to be one of the Cinderella stories. Their defense was uh, suffocating. Uh, and they, I, I, I see them beating a Purdue or a Texas Tech, especially because Purdue is down their starting center. Uh, for his first, I think it's Haas. Um, and then Villanova, of course, is Villanova. They have experience. Uh, they have great coaching. And they've Villanova is, I think, one of the only teams that's been able to really cruise through the tournament. They're definitely the only one seed that hasn't been tested yet. Like Kansas was tested in the first round by Penn. Um, and Villanova hasn't really had that opportunity. And like transitioning a little bit. Villanova and West Virginia is going to be a phenomenal game to watch. I think it will decide the Final Four team. Um, but West Virginia shooters are hot. They were on fire during the Marshall game. And like I said, Villanova hasn't really had trouble yet. But I think I predict that they'll have some trouble early in the game. I wouldn't be surprised if West Virginia gets out to, like say, a 15-6 to start or something like that. Just because their defense is so good. And also Villanova might get punched in the mouth a little bit. But I think this will be a high-scoring affair. Uh, despite West Virginia's defense, I think it'll be so much fun to watch, uh, and I'm excited to to see that one. Final region uh, that we're going to talk about is the Midwest. Uh, the top part of this bracket, Kansas versus Clemson, a 1v5. That's another good matchup uh, coming up. Kansas, I think, is one of the most complete teams in the tournament uh, with their senior leadership. I've, I talked plenty about that last week. Um, but Clemson did look really good against Auburn. like They destroyed Auburn. Uh, I think there was a stretch where Auburn missed 18 shots in a row, closing out the first half. And they were Auburn was the SEC regular season champ. So if Auburn was a nobody, that wouldn't mean anything. But Auburn was one of the um, 
maybe underrated teams coming into this tournament. Uh, and yet Clemson led them by 24 at the half and led them by like at least 40 at one point. Um, but at the end of the day, this matchup is going to come down to shooting, which team can get hot. Um, and also, Kansas's center Udoka Azabuki establishing himself in the paint early. If he can do that, I think they'll have a nice uh, outlet to score points all night long. Uh, now, like I said, Cinderella Syracuse is back on the other part of this bracket. Um, and they're going to have a tough time, though, because Duke has been another rare dominant team in this tournament, thanks to Marvin Bagley III, who has had huge games so far. And Syracuse is going to have a difficult time handling him. Um, but I, I think Duke and Kansas will escape the Sweet 16 on this side of the bracket, but I would not be surprised if it goes the other way. Just the way that this has been going uh, and the strength of the teams that are facing Kansas and Duke. So that is the March Madness talk for this weekend. It, it's sad that we are coming up on, well, not the end of March Madness yet. We'll have one more week after this. But if you are watching, the South and the West regions games in the Sweet 16 will be on Thursday. Uh, let me scroll around a little bit. Uh, that's going to be your Kentucky-Kansas State game and your Loyola-Chicago-Tennessee game, as well as your Gonzaga-Florida State game and Texas A&Michigan. On Friday, it will be Villanova-West Virginia-Purdue-Texas Tech and Kansas-Clemson and Syracuse-Duke. So, a great slate. For Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday's Elite Eight, and on next Tuesday, we should have a Final Four preview for you. Uh, I'm excited to see how this bracket plays out. Uh, it's been a phenomenal weekend if you like, well, if you like basketball in general. Uh, every game has been good. The atmospheres have been phenomenal, uh, and I, I love this, just in general. So, that's the March Madness talk, and let's go straight to, we have some fan questions this week, phenomenal. Uh, let's start out with a question from Evan. How many games do you think the Browns will win next year? Uh, hmm. Well, I probably have to go with around five. Um, like I said, I don't think they're going to be able to like just game or just break the league this year. Uh, this will be, but I think they're going to win some games. Uh, I think they, I, I think they might have a similar season to say the 49ers team this year. Uh, like they're, they might start off slow, but then once they find their groove, I think they're going to be actually a decent team, like maybe two and six or one and seven in the first eight. And then maybe four and four in the last eight, something like that, where you start to see them improve toward the end of the year. And finally, we can go into the off season talking about a Browns team. That's not on in the pit of misery. Uh, next question, a couple of NBA questions actually from Noah. Can anyone but the Cavs get out of the East? Um, I think just looking at the standings this year, I mean, the Raptors and Celtics are both really good teams with some talented stars. Um, and I think those teams have a chance to contend with the Cavs this year. But until I really see them in the playoffs vulnerable, I think the Cavs are going to need to have some kind of injury or some player out uh, in order for a team to really beat them. Because I know they've been looked vulnerable at times this year, but at full strength, when the Cavs are at full strength, it's really hard to beat LeBron four times in seven games, which is what you have to do in a series. And you're going to have to consistently be able to beat them. Like the Warriors, who have been able, only team that's been able to beat the Cavs in the playoffs the last few years, um, they're deep and they're, they shoot really well and they're consistent. And that's what a team is going to have to do against the Cavs. Uh, hopefully the Raptors don't have some PTSD from last year when they got crushed by the Cavs in the Eastern Conference Finals. 
and are able to contend with them again. Because either the, uh, the Raptors or the Celtics in a Western Conference Final would be interesting to watch. Uh, finally, from Devin, who else can beat the Warriors besides the Rockets uh, in the West? I think the Trailblazers actually have a decent chance of knocking off the Warriors because none of these other teams, like the Spurs, who they played last night, uh, who beat the Warriors, the Warriors are down their four All-Stars. So the, really the only team that I've seen that's able to keep up with the Warriors at full strength when they're healthy and rested is Portland, um, just because of, mostly because of the backcourt. I mean, CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard can knock down shots with the best of them, and they can keep up with the Curry and Thompson if, the, if they catch them on an off night or even a medium night. Uh, the Trailblazers are talented enough to beat the Warriors. Uh, and also, they're familiar They're familiar with Golden State. They've played them a ton of times. They know how to handle uh, the Oracle crowd and, and the Warriors' runs and make runs of their own. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if the Trailblazers are able to hang or even beat hang with or even beat the Warriors uh, in a seven-game series, which is the playoffs. Uh, so those are the fan questions for uh, this week. And let me stall a little bit while I pop open the quick take. Uh, are you guys excited for this weekend? Let me know. Email, as always, Patreon. Uh, I'll do the gist at the end of the show. But here we go. The quick take. Okay. There are some shakeups in the NBA. Um, Milwaukee. The Milwaukee Bucks are denying head coach interest in Jeff Van Gundy, Kevin McHale. And the Detroit Pistons are denying interest in Chauncey Billups. Yeah, these are two teams that are kind of in like the purgatory of, of, of the NBA uh, with kind of hanging around the middle of the league where you don't really have a legitimate shot to win it all, um, but you're still good enough to compete. Like the Pistons, after acquiring Blake Griffin, of course, uh, are stronger. And the Milwaukee Bucks with the Greek Freak um, are, are talented and long and good. But... Um, and these coaching moves would, I think, be potentially interesting. But I think they have to make some change if they want to be able to compete at the top. I don't know whether that be coaching or you're going to have to acquire some better personnel. You have to maybe wait for one of these other teams to fall apart uh, before you can really compete with the big boys in their respective conferences, uh, the Bucks in the West and the Pistons in the East. Um, but I think these will be interesting developing stories to track. Uh, as we keep going along in this NBA season and this NBA decade, really. Uh, so, yeah, that's the quick take. Uh, thank you so much for listening, as usual. Uh, website, bit.ly slash thelongtakes, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thelongtakes, email thelongtakes at gmail.com. Uh, at there, you can send, send fan questions, check out full archives of the podcast, uh, rate the podcast on iTunes, Review the podcast, write a review. We, we have an average rating. I've probably said that before, but I want to say it again. Uh, and let's keep it going. Uh, also, listen on Google Play. If it's not working for whatever reason, just email me or send me a, shoot me a message on the bit.ly or anything. Uh, thank you so much, and I will see you next week.